Hello, I'm Tom Hauser. Vice President Mike Pence visited Minnesota this week seeking support for trade deals he says will help Minnesota farmers and steel companies. In the midst of negotiations and higher tariffs placed on Chinese imports, he says the Trump administration believes fears of a trade war will eventually give way to a stronger economy. An upbeat Vice President Pence appeared at a friendly venue at a steel plant in St. Paul, a beneficiary of Trump administration trade policies that have boosted American steel. We know that we've got to level the playing field for American workers by forging trade deals that put American jobs and American workers first, and that's exactly what President Trump and I have been doing since the first day of this administration. Before his speech, Vice President Pence toured Gerdau Steel in St. Paul that employs 328 workers. He told the workers 2,000 manufacturing jobs have been created in Minnesota since 2017 and promised to keep fighting for trade deals that will help them. Manufacturing has come roaring back thanks to the policies that we've been advancing under this president's leadership. And American Steel has come roaring back as well. We did get a chance for a brief press availability with Vice President Pence after his speech, and he responded to a question about Republican members of Congress expressing concern to the Trump administration about their threatened tariffs on China. Vice President Pence said there's no reason for them to worry. The president took decisive action on behalf of American Steel when he imposed national security 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum. And we see American steels come roaring back. During a visit to a northwest Minnesota farm earlier in the day, Pence heard concerns about the impact of retaliatory tariffs on American farm products. He said if Congress will approve a new trade deal with Mexico and Canada, farmers and manufacturers will benefit. Our message on the farm in Minnesota today, our message here at Gerdau Steel is all the same. The president's done his job. Now it's time for Congress to do their job. DFL leaders in Minnesota have a very different take on all of this. They say the steelworkers and farmers Pence visited are the people the Trump administration is hurting most with its policies. Their policies have had a disastrous effect and impact on countless Minnesotans. With a stroke of a pen, or maybe I should say a few tweets, our foreign markets were gone. The DFL says farm income hit a 23-year low last year and bankruptcies doubled. Meanwhile, more Democratic candidates for president are making their way to Minnesota as the clock ticks toward the 2020 primaries. Callan Gray was there as former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke made his first campaign stops in the Twin Cities this week. Greeting a packed Edison High School cafeteria. Yo, Minneapolis, how are you doing? Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke called for immigration reform, gun control, and affordable health care. So this is what we do. We free ourselves from the real or perceived conflict of interest 
by not accepting any political action committee money at all from any of them. The El Paso native is the latest Democrat to visit the bold north. On May 2nd, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg held a private fundraiser in St. Paul. And entrepreneur Andrew Yang was in the Twin Cities May 5th. Well, I think it's a Democratic stronghold. At least it was. And hopefully it will continue to be. I know we came close to losing a state when uh, the last election took place. I just think that, you know, I think both sides see this as an opportunity to pick up Minnesota. So I, you know, as a Democrat, I hope that we put our best candidate forward so that we can win in 2020. In 2016, Donald Trump narrowly missed winning the state's 10 electoral votes. And so we're going to see a very different strategy for 2020. And we are highly confident the president has a good opportunity to win our state's electoral votes with his high popularity. On Thursday, Vice President Mike Pence was back here, the seventh time in just over a year either Pence or President Trump have come to Minnesota. That is absolutely significant because in our state, we have never seen this level of attention from Republican leadership out in Washington. Callan Gray, 5 Eyewitness News. The last time Minnesota voted for a Republican president was President Nixon back in 1972. But Democratic voters tell us they're concerned about their party's crowded field this year. There are 21 candidates so far, including Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. While O'Rourke was campaigning in her home state, Klobuchar was in Milwaukee this week, taking part in a live town hall event broadcast on Fox News. She talked about her plans, if elected, to keep the economy booming. And while there are jobs out there, we know that, it's become harder and harder for people to afford health care, right? So you have to be able to afford health care to keep going to work. You have to have roads and bridges and rail that work so you can go to a job. So when I look at how we keep our economy strong, it's taking on those challenges. This was Klobuchar's third nationally televised town hall event. You might recall she did one on CNN shortly after she entered the race last February. After taking several days off for the fishing opener and other things, budget talks are set to pick up again tonight at the state capitol. Stop me if you've heard this before, but negotiations have been rocky from the very start. And there's just one week left in the legislative session with billions of dollars on the line in taxes and spending. Other questions or comments from members? Conference committees continue to meet, but there's not much they can do without an overall budget agreement. Republican and Democratic leaders met with Governor Walls again Tuesday afternoon, but talks quickly broke off. Until there's a real counteroffer, there's nothing to talk about. Governor Walls offered to cut his spending proposal by $200 million, but keeps his 20-cent gas tax increase and 2% health care provider tax intact. Republican senators countered with an increase in education spending, but only if there's no gas tax increase and elimination of the provider tax. Our issue is we want them uh, to make movement on the large tax increases across many different areas. Uh, over a, a four-year period, it was $12 billion. Governor Walls has been counting on Republicans at least compromising on taxes, but now seems uncertain that will happen. Yeah, I don't see him giving anything either, and I think that that's unfortunate because, again, the alternative to this is not winning. If there's a political win, it is crumbling roads, bridges, and transportation system. Um, I've laid out a very comprehensive plan. Theirs is the status quo. Earlier, the House Speaker was more forceful in denouncing Republicans who claimed Democrats aren't willing to compromise. Which is, I'm sorry, bull****. 
the governor moved $200 million. We propose to move $664 million. They are not that bad at math. Lawmakers, of course, missed their self-imposed deadline for setting budget targets earlier this week. Again, they must come up with a budget deal by the end of the day on May 20th if they want to avoid another special session. A push to create a rare disease advisory council in Minnesota is a step closer to reality. The Minnesota Senate unanimously passed a bill this week. The council would be established at the University of Minnesota and would be tasked with increasing access to life-saving treatments, research, and technology. About one in ten Minnesotans lives with some form of a rare disease. The bill is now awaiting a vote in the Minnesota House. A public awareness campaign is underway to inform Minnesotans about the new hands-free cell phone law. That goes into effect August 1st. The campaign will include print, TV, and radio ads, along with a lot of messages on social media. The Department of Public Safety set up a Facebook Live broadcast on Wednesday to answer questions about what is and what is not allowed under the new law. They also encourage people to go hands-free starting now. We don't want any Minnesotan to be surprised by the new law. So there will be enforcement that starts August 1st. It could be a citation. It could be a warning. That's exactly why we're working so hard from now through the summer all the way through August 1st and beyond to educate as much as we can. First-time violators face a petty misdemeanor charge and a $50 fine. Every violation after that jumps to $275. Up next, Brian Melendez and Jennifer Loon will be here for political analysis. And he was once in charge of tens of thousands of U.S. troops in the Middle East. The former CENTCOM commander is now retired and living in Minnesota. We look back at his amazing career. Just over a month ago, General Joseph Votel was one of the top generals in the country in charge of military operations in hotspots like Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq. Now he's retired and living here in the Twin Cities. He wants to devote time to reminding Americans about military men and women risking their lives every day. I'd like to welcome our witness, General Joseph Votel, uh, commander of the United States Central Command. Until his recent retirement, four-star General Joseph Votel commanded 80,000 military men and women in the U.S. Central Command overseeing Middle East operations. I'm proud to stand among them as their commander. All of these great Americans have families and communities across our country that support their service members from near and far. Votel served under both President Obama and President Trump. The 61-year-old grew up in St. Paul, went to Creighton High School before heading off to West Point and then a remarkable military career. Now in retirement, he's moved back to the Twin Cities. Do you literally, maybe in some cases, feel like the weight of the world has been lifted from your shoulders? Well, yeah, to some extent, yeah. As the CENTCOM commander, he was in charge of hotspots like Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria. This is an incredibly complex area, and uh, it requires a lot of study, and it requires a lot. You have to be there to understand just the peculiarities of this very, very complex but very important region. Votel is a former Army Ranger who served in Iraq and Afghanistan after 9-11. Well, there's not a lot of very good aspects of being at war. One of the, one of the really positive aspects of, of, this la of this over last, you know, 18 or 19 years is that the American public, I think, has fallen back in love with their, with their military. In retirement, Votel wants to spend time focusing on reminding people on the home front that military men and women 
need support. When you're deployed and you feel the support that comes from your hometown community or your state or from your country in general, I think it I think it's a I think it's a combat multiplier, frankly. It makes them feel more proud, it makes them feel more determined in accomplishing the missions. Do you ever sit back and think about what a remarkable time you served in the US military? Every day. I'm just very, very proud to have been in uniform and being able to serve the nation at a time of its greatest need. General Votel will be the keynote speaker for the Minnesota Military Appreciation Fund dinner coming up Thursday at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington. I will be the MC for that event, and tickets are still available. We have a link on our website, kstp.com, so you can get more information. And I have emceed that event a number of years in a row. It is such an inspirational event uh, to go to. They support military veterans and their families and really just some great work. So uh, joining me now for political analysis, Jennifer Loon and Brian Melendez. Thank you both for being here. Let's talk about the annual budget mess at the state capitol, or I guess semi-annual since every other year is a, a, a budget year. Jennifer, you served in the Minnesota House for a number of years. How do they get out of this? They're so far apart, only one week to go. Well, we've been in this spot many, many times before. I think uh, we'll see if they can make some progress. Uh, they're scheduled to meet next Sunday. They said they may talk about this during the fishing opener, but we'll see how that plays. I mean, uh, Brian was very eloquent comparing it to West Side Story and the sharks and the jets rumbling. <laughs> Maybe this weekend we'll be like grumpy old men and Speaker Hartman in a boat, but um, you know, they're gonna have to come up with a deal pretty soon. I would say by maybe Wednesday this week, uh, in order for those committee chairs to have time to put together their deals and get their bills written. That takes a little time. Yeah, there's not a lot of time left. Obviously, they're going to be meeting uh, tonight on Mother's Day evening trying to hammer out a deal. It's unlikely to happen uh, that quickly, but time is running short. And as we know, Brian, from past years, when they're legislating in the middle of the night near the end of the session, a lot of messy things happen. Well, that's true, but this year looks like most other years as far as where they are in the process. It doesn't look like some other years because there's not a lot of acrimony. There's not a lot of name-calling. They're not accusing each other of bad faith. They're trading proposals back and forth, and that's what they're supposed to be doing, and that's how it works. That's how you get to a result. But they only traded a couple proposals, and the last ones were last Tuesday, and I think the reason there haven't been any insults is they haven't really seen each other much since Tuesday. As things time grows shorter... The tempers get a little more heated. Uh, they may, but you know, I think Senator Gazelka, Gazelka in particular is a pretty steady hand in trying to bring down the temperature of the room and keep everybody on an even keel. So uh, I would agree with Brian. I think they're they're doing a pretty good job of keeping the acrimony to a manageable level. And Brian, a lot of the chatter in the hallways at the state capitol is the ultimate end game here is. Uh, the governor gives up all of his transportation taxes, and the Republicans give in on uh, extending the health care provider tax, and then they work out some other details, and then they go home. I doubt it's going to be that simple. Um, I, th I think there will be a little bit of trading back and forth, but I don't think anybody is going to concede a major point of their program. And that's the problem, because Republicans, it, it's not just that they don't want to approve a 20-cent gas tax increase. They don't want to approve a 1-cent gas tax increase. Where's the middle ground? Well, I honestly don't think there's going to be one on the gas tax. I, I would agree that the provider tax still provides the best opportunity for a deal to be crafted, which means there's going to be, have to be less spending than the Democrats want. 
Now, the Republicans had put out, uh, they haven't negotiated, like I said, since Tuesday, but on Thursday, the Republicans put out, you know, their own uh, view of things, and they say the the Senate plan increases spending, even without tax increases, by nearly 5%, whereas House Democrats are at 9.4% increase in spending, Governor Walls at uh, 8.4% spending. Those are big numbers, really all of them, even the 4.9 is way above the rate of inflation. They're big numbers in isolation, but it's a very big budget. So, uh, you know, a billion dollars here and a billion dollars there, and it all starts to add up. But we're, we're a state that has a budget in the tens of billions of dollars, and that's what the legislature is there for. They're going to be able to close the gap if they want to. And again, it may have to happen on a fishing boat. As, as we talked about before, the governor's fishing opener always ends up, it appears, interfering in some ways with these budget negotiations. You see video of the governor and lieutenant governor down in Albert Lee on, on Friday. Is this an impediment, or does this help give them a nice break from the negotiations? Well, maybe a nice break, and it is, it's a little bit amusing that we always find time to set aside for, for this tradition, but uh, maybe getting away from the Capitol, again, out on a boat, uh, enjoying some fishing will be, will be good for everybody. There's always the fear, though, if Gazelka and Walls are in the same boat, someone might go overboard. Any concern <laughs> of that? Well, yeah, I always thought the fishing opener was a part of the process. I didn't realize that was a separate thing. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's become part of the process. I think you're right. Brian and Jennifer, thank you both for being here. Appreciate it. Up next, Catherine Tanucci and Kurt Zellers will be here for Face Off. We'll be back in two minutes. As you saw earlier, Vice President Mike Pence was in Minnesota promoting the new trade deal the Trump administration negotiated with Mexico and Canada. Congress has not approved the USMCA deal for a variety of reasons. The vice president put some not-so-subtle pressure on a Minnesota congressman to get the deal approved, and it's our quote of the week. I was in the district of Congressman Colin Peterson today, who is chairman of the House Agriculture Committee. Congressman Peterson and I served together. He's actually expressed support for the USMCA. But we're calling on Congressman Peterson to tell Speaker Pelosi to bring the USMCA to the floor. And again, that was Vice President Pence at a steel mill in St. Paul the other day. And Catherine Tanucci and Kurt Zellers uh, join me now for face-off. Let's talk a little bit about this, uh, this trade deal. It was not by coincidence that he went to a farm before he was at that steel mill up in Colin Peterson's district because he's trying to put some pressure on Colin Peterson, who is a Democrat serving in a heavily Republican district. Yeah, I read um, Congressman Peterson's response yesterday to this visit, and he represents a district with a lot of farmers, and farmers have been hurt very badly. Commodity prices are down, costs are up, and the uncertainty that Trump's trade policies has created has been very costly for farmers. And I like that, you know, Congressman Peterson acknowledges that the USMCA deal is not bad, and he'll likely vote for it, and he'd be happy to ask the speaker to, to bring it up for a vote. But um, I liked the line, the way he put it. He says, it seems foolish to uh, celebrate our, our ability to dig a hole and, then, and our ability to dig, excuse me, I said that very wrong. To dig a hole. To dig a hole and then celebrate, and celebrate our, our, yeah. our ability to dig out of it. Yeah, yeah and it's, but he, he's masterful at kind of playing both sides of these issues, oh, yeah. which he has to do yeah. in such a heavily Republican district. Yeah, he's got a lot of farmers that, that I would say probably vote Republican, donate Republican, tell their family to vote Republican. And he's a Democrat congressman in a 30-plus Republican district. Uh, Trump won by 20-some points. The, Catherine's point is spot on, that ag commodity prices have been influenced by, by the president's trade policies. 
mostly on steel, which no surprise is at a steel mill before he went to the farm. But uh, the USMCA deal being ratified would do a lot to set to calm the waters both between Canada and Mexico. And it's up to him to present it, the president, but it's also up to Speaker Pelosi to give it the vote. But still, some of those farmers are saying that they have lost so much money that even if they are patient, as the Trump administration wants them to be, waiting for these deals to get ratified and see the impact, uh, even if they start making money, they're not going to make it back. They, they've already right. lost so much that there is no turning back. That's true, and I think a lot of the criticism of this deal, too, is that it isn't going to be even what the president promises, and they're not, it's not that much different from the previous trade deal that's still in place and NAFTA. still operating. Yeah. Right. Uh, let's uh, shift gears to the budget, because both of you have been involved in these budget negotiations in the past. You, when working for Governor Dayton, and you as a Speaker of the House, as the Republican Speaker of the House, uh, we're one week away from, from the finish. It, it seems to me it's going to be messy no matter what, because there is so little time, and all the major legislation is still out there. Well, right, and, and hopefully on that boat this, uh, over this weekend, you know, they'll get back to town tonight, and they will make the, the necessary decisions on here's the big number, here's what you get for your pile, here's what you get for your pile, and then those individual committee chairs and those conference committees can go and divvy it up. If they don't move soon, though, by like Tuesday, Wednesday, start getting these bills, some of it's just process. I mean, the HHS bill is this thick. They've got to get that physically processed to have a vote on it. So time is running. They've got three or four solid days to get these things done and voted on, and they can do it, but they got to start making some serious movement by Thursday. And each side is going to have to make a major concession, whether it be on transportation taxes, the license to have fees, gas tax, or the health care provider tax. People are going to have to make major moves. There's no question about that. I was thinking earlier, the last time, you know, Kurt and I were, it, were at the Capitol working on this, there was a $6 billion deficit. I'm not sure which is harder, trying to negotiate a budget with a deficit or a surplus, because there's different challenges. Um, in the, you know, last week, we saw the governor move on his initial offer. We saw House DFLers move on their initial offer. We've yet to see some, any movement from Senate Republicans, and, and they're going to have to move, too. Just five seconds. Do you recall who won that battle between <laughs> uh, Dayton and Kurt Well, <laughs> We were all well, unhappy, so that means we all won, Everybody right? won. Yeah, yeah. Good. You guys are very, very politically correct. Thank you, Catherine and Kurt Zellers. Thanks for being here. Up next, how the vice president is supporting a Minnesota teen's quest to help Alzheimer's patients. On this Mother's Day weekend, a Little Falls teen is paying tribute to her great-grandma in a big way, and she got some help from the vice president. Seventh grader Ella Puss was invited to greet Vice President Mike Pence during his visit to the Twin Cities on Thursday. He presented her with a painting of the U.S. Capitol painted by his wife, Karen Pence. Ella will include it in her upcoming silent auction for the Alzheimer's Association in memory of her great-grandma. She and her mom wrote a letter to the vice president asking him to consider donating an item. He read the letter personally and invited her to be a greeter when he landed in Minneapolis. So it's just amazing, amazing experience. What are you going to remember about this? Everything. Just meeting him, shaking his hand, getting the picture. So far, Ella has helped raise more than $20,000 for the Alzheimer's Association. What a great tribute to her grandma. You can listen to episodes of At Issue every week on iTunes and Podcast One. We have links posted at KSTB.com. Happy Mother's Day to all of you moms out there. We'll see you next week.